Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Order shipments? Check. Virtual meeting? Check. Schedule heart checkup? Done. We've all adapted to a new way of living. Keep your health care on schedule with Johns Hopkins Medicine, where your health and safety are our highest priorities. We're ready to care for you through virtual and in-person visits across Maryland and the greater Washington region. Your health, our experts, safely caring for you. Schedule your care now. Learn more at hopkinsmedicine.org forward slash safe. Welcome to the Sox Machine 2020 postseason postgame show. Here to break it all down, analyzing the in-game decisions and key moments, are your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob. And yes, welcome to the Sox Machine 2020 postgame show. I'm your host, Josh Nelson. And this postgame show won't be as happy as it was yesterday when the White Sox won game one. That's because the Chicago White Sox lost game two by a final score of five to three. And now the series is tied and it will go to an elimination winner take all game three. We're going to be recapping game two and think of ideas for Rick Renteria to possibly implement for game three. But joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. You said on the pregame show that you were thinking it would be a 4-2 victory for Oakland. You almost called it. Yeah, two-run margin. Uh, kind of the way I saw it unfolding with Bassett outpitching Keuchel, um, just with Keuchel having a smaller margin of error that his infield didn't afford him. So that part was uh, you know, more or less you know, went to uh, according to expectations. But then afterwards, the last two innings were, I, I didn't picture that at all. Yeah, they made a game out of it. I mean, they were down 5 nothing, heading into the eighth inning. And somehow, Jose Abreu bats as the go-ahead run is standing on first base. Like, the White Sox almost pulled off the miracle. So if you're looking for a silver lining, that's a good place to start. Uh, as they really made the Oakland Athletics closer, Liam Hendricks, really work. Today He threw 49 pitches to try to get the two-inning save, and he wasn't able to do it, uh, which uh, which could be a good sign for the White Sox. 
uh, heading to Game 3. But why did the White Sox lose? I think this really falls onto two players, and let's start with the first one, and that's Dallas Keuchel. Keuchel did not have a good game for the White Sox today, Jim, and I'm a bit surprised because his pitch location was right down the middle, and he was not able to hit the corners at all looking at baseball savant and as far as tracking his pitches. And his final line was three and a third innings. He gave up six hits, five runs, three of them earned. We'll get to that in a moment. He didn't walk anybody, and he did strike out four, but very un like He gave up two home runs, and that ended up being the difference in today's game, and he just dug too big of a hole for the White Sox to climb out of. It reminded me a little bit of the White Sox, how they looked against Jesus Lazardo, just attacking strikes in the zone. Uh, Keuchel, you know, does not have Lazardo's 95 mile per hour fastball. He works in the high 80s. And so, you know, that that's you can maybe away with that for an inning at a time. You know, perhaps if he's a sinker baller settling in, like Steve Stone likes to say, throwing high sinkers early, then finding the lower part of the zone and below uh, over the next four or five. But in this case, yeah, the. First inning, he might have had a chance to get out of it. Got a couple of ground balls that probably, you know, should have been turned into outs. At least one of them should have been turned to an out and said two runs scored. And after that, I'm not sure if, you know, the his start looks any different if he gets out of the first inning and scored upon or if everything just catches up to him. Uh, but I guess, yeah, that's maybe the... Uh, it bails out Nick Madrigal a little bit just because the pitch execution from the second inning on was a lot, lot less impressive. Like Sean Murphy almost hover, homers over the foul pole. Right. Might have been, you know, I, I think if uh, that was ruled fair, you know, it would have been overturned. Just no way to tell if it, you know, where it crossed the foul pole, you know, uh, just went, hit so high, hit so far, you know, it rattled off the facade. Uh, but anyway, Murphy gets back in the box, lines a single just as hard, then Marcus Simeon goes deep. So just over the course of like three pitches, you know, just uh, just bad results, you know, and he should have been able to shake off the first inning just the same. So no matter the misfortune in the first, the second inning on was up to Keuchel. So, yeah, it was a uh, tandem effort between him and the defense. And let's go to the second player that had a bad game. And I think where a lot of the conversation needs to be, and it's on the rookie Nick Madrigal, and I want a preference by rookie. This is his second postseason game ever for a lot of the White Sox players. It's their second postseason game ever. But in the first inning, the infield lip got to him again, like it did in this past weekend with the White Sox facing the Chicago Cubs. And after the game, he said that if I get a glove on it, I should make the play. Uh, So I think he owns up as far as that mistake. But it's the second inning that really grinds my gears, Jim. I have watched a lot of Nick Madrigal when he was at Oregon State preparing for the draft his sophomore year. And when he started his junior year, obviously there was the break because his wrist broke. Uh, But watching as far as when he did return and through the postseason and watching him through the minor leagues and man... If there is one score that is dropping for him, it is base running. I don't know if he was just straight up thinking straight steal with Tim Anderson batting, but it's one of those base running fundamentals, Jim, that everyone is taught, even in Little League, that as you're going and you hear the ball hit the bat, you got to look home to see where the ball is. And he never did. And he should have been at third base on Tim Anderson 
Anderson single to right field. And that ended up being costly because Yohan Makata had a deep fly and one heck of a play by Mark Hanna. I can't believe he made that catch at the wall. But if Magical was doing the right thing, he would have been at third base and he would have tagged up and scored and the White Sox would have been on the board. So his mistake in the first inning cost the White Sox two runs and his base running mistake in the second inning cost the White Sox a run. So that's negative three runs. And oh, look, the White Sox lost by two. Yeah, it's a yeah. That was the uh, that was the third inning, uh, by the way. But yeah, it's, yeah, third inning. Sorry. Yeah, it, it, and he also made a second error in the game, uh, trying to turn two and, and firing the ball wide for whatever reason. You know, watching him come up, you know, in the minor league system. You know, watched him a lot with Winston Salem, and uh, you know, coming up the ladder. Just it seemed like you know his strength was his fast decision making like his um, ability to get rid of the ball you know, make plays on the other side of second uh, ranging to his right throwing across his body quick uh, double play turns taking the extra base and for whatever reason I don't know if it's just like his motor n- is no longer good enough on its own to where he needs to do more thinking but it's not quite working out for him in the major league. Oh, I mean, I think probably after the season when I'm you know, evaluating uh, just some players' progress, I'll be taking inventory of just the mistakes he made along these lines of just either not processing information fast enough or not you know, processing it too quickly. Like his defensive actions look rushed a lot of the time. Uh, it's the second time getting you know, caught by the lip, which I think, you know, once is you know, tough. The second time though, it probably is a matter of positioning at some point if you're in a position to where you can't react to a lip bounce. Uh, and then, yeah, just the, um, not picking up the, not picking up the batted ball, not picking up the fact that a ball was put into play, not picking up the third base coach, you know, letting him know that he had mm-hmm. time. He, he had time to pause at second and continue on to third. Like it wasn't like a, a one hop, uh, like a, a line drive that short hopped the right fielder. And thus he had to hold up and maybe try making back to first. He could have slid to second picked up the third base coach and continued on his way, but he didn't do that. In fact, he rounded second base backwards and headed back to first. Like he was completely uh, out of it. And that's, I think the, the thing that's surprising when you consider his background, his scouting reports, what the white Sox say about him, uh, just the base running has been uh, baffling at times. And, you know, that's the kind of thing where if he were, uh, you know, if he were in a college trained player, uh, you know, he might be drawing a, uh, you know, c- comparisons to like Alejandro Diaz, just, you know, the, a player that the mm-hmm. White Sox didn't know that they brought, you know, or White Sox fans didn't know him. He was a waiver claim, uh, didn't know exactly where he came from, came, you know, when Diaz came up, he was a good leadoff hitter, but just ran to a lot of outs. So they just thought it was, a, he was a dumb base runner and magical looks the same way. I mean, like he, he doesn't have that reputation. He's supposed to be heady and intelligent and a baseball rat, but, uh, it certainly does not look that way right now. You know, maybe it's just part of the learning curve, but, uh, He's, he's had a few mistakes to learn from like that. This wasn't his first one. In a winner-take-all game three tomorrow, this might be a hot take. And I'm sure Rick Renteria disagrees. I'm sure Nick Magical will be in the starting lineup tomorrow at second base. But in my opinion, Jim, it should be Yomer Sanchez. Because even though Nick Magical did get two singles today, and he was two for four, and he was the only other White Sox player with a multi-hit game, other than Tim Anderson, you got you. At the very least, a Gold Glove second baseman like Yomer Sanchez helps you with the run prevention part, and the the two throwing errors and the bad base running. You can't have that in Game Three, 
So I got to go with what I know, and I would go with Yomer Sanchez starting at second base tomorrow over Nick Madrigal. Uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is that Madrigal's bats, yeah, his bats have been really good. You know, he's been working counts, getting into bad counts, and punching his way out of the corner. Um, you know, it's really surprising to me. Like, the, I thought, if anything, the bat might be behind the rest of his skills as he molded himself into a major league player and says the opposite. He looks fine, composed at the plate, never in over his head, but everything else looks like he, it's very easy for him to lose composure. So when you floated that idea, I did have the idea that, you know, if Eloy Jimenez is not ready to play, you know, he's still in the same shape and just not healthy to do anything besides swing a bat and limp to first, you know, I wondered if like Nick Madrigal would be a good DH opportunity, depending on, on, yeah, it's possible, depending on, you know, what the handedness. I think Nomar Mazzara, he had a couple good at-bats, you know, coming in as mid-game replacement. So I don't mind him starting if the pitching matchup is right. But if the pitching matchup is not right, yeah, I don't necessarily mind having uh, Madrigal as a DH and Leary as a emergency infielder should something go wrong with any of the starters, you know, so you don't have to worry about losing the DH. Uh, just because, yeah get the base running threat that uh, Madrigal poses, but otherwise at least you get the at-bats, and as we saw like for at least most of this game, that they're just on bats, so I don't want the White Sox to mess up with that, especially if they're facing a mostly right-handed Oakland bullpen for the duration of it. Yeah, we'll get to the Oakland bullpen in a moment. So those were the two bad games. Dallas Keuchel was not good, and he put the White Sox in a bad position early, and the two home runs that he allowed really were backbreaking. It was just too deep of a hole for the White Sox to climb out of. But some good moments. Yasmani Grandal hit another home run, Jim. That's back-to-back games with home runs. And it was a two-run shot uh, that he had in the eighth inning. And uh, I know that it's it's not it's sometimes an adventure. He might be going one for four in the game. But right now, he's kind of ha- he has the flair of the dramatic. A little, little late-inning action from Yasmani Grandal. And uh, I think there's a lot of White Sox fans that they, they are clamoring for James McCann to be in the lineup. And I don't know that that McCann is ice cold at this moment, uh, hitting wise. Uh, but Grandal, I think you got to keep his bat in the lineup because they need left-handed power, and he's providing it. Yeah, I'm happy that he showed up in in the late innings of uh, both games. He had the homer in the eighth inning in Game One. Homer in the eighth inning game two and also drew a walk in the ninth. Like, you know, I thought maybe I was hoping for like some kind of Tata Hito Gucci magic of homers in the eighth and ninth <laughs> to tie the game. Uh, instead, he had to settle for a base load walk, didn't get anything to hit. So he didn't swing and it ended up uh, moving the line to Jose Abreu and Abreu. I, he had the right idea. He had the right swing for the right pitch. He just didn't uh, get it in the air. Like he was looking for an inside out, you know, trying to exploit the right center gap that would have tied the game, maybe scored three uh, with a pinch runner on first with the big outfield, but uh, just get it in the air and ended up in a 96 mile per hour, um, you know, one hopper, two hopper to second. But, you know, the thought process was good. And I, I think the thought process behind starting Grandal is good. And so in all these cases, I, you know, I, when we talk about it and, you know, we look at it more from an analytical standpoint, sabermetric standpoint that we like, the process behind decisions more than sometimes the outcome, just because usually the process leads to good outcomes. And when it doesn't, it shouldn't be faulted. You should just look at how they arrived at the decision. And with Grandal getting these starts and uh, showing up in the late innings and delivering, it's it's nice to see uh, the faith in Grandal being just a, a good enough player and an excellent player in some ways to, uh, you know, maybe he's frustrating others, but those, those, 
assets that Grandal brings, turning up in the late innings, I think just reinforces the faith that the White Sox coaching staff has in him and also should bolster the faith that maybe skeptical White Sox fans have uh, uh, been holding out on him. Yeah, Yasmani Grandal finished today one for three with the home run, three RBIs, two walks, and a strikeout. Yohan Makata, Lurie Garcia, we talked about on the pregame show that the White Sox really needed the left-handed hitters to come through. Grandel did. Uh, Noah Mazzara in a pinch hit performance was one for two. He should have been one for one with the walk. His called three strike was way off the plate on Baseball Savant, and I tweeted as far as the strike zone, Jim. That wasn't anywhere close. As a matter of fact, the home plate umpire called a ball on a pitch that was much closer to the plate. Uh, then the strike three called on Nomar Mazzara, which was really unfortunate as that really slowed down the White Sox comeback attempts, even in the eighth inning. Uh, but, you know, with Lurie Garcia, I don't know, Jim. I some, His swing just doesn't look right. And I, I, I'm now at the point that I'm impressed that he, if he can make contact. This was a long break for him. Uh, again, he hadn't played a game since August 10th. And I don't know if there's anything there offensively that he could provide value-wise for the White Sox because I just think there's too much rust built up. Yeah, I think it's part rust and it's part, um, you know, given that's a thumb injury and thumb injuries are always problematic for hitters uh, and and he's coming off surgery, it seems like either he's trying his best to avoid getting jammed and uh, thus, like, the barrel is really late coming through because, like, the hands are coming through, the barrel is lagging behind it, but he just doesn't want to get hit on the handle to perhaps avoid some uh, unpleasant reverberations, uh, you know, up the hands and through the arms. Or maybe it's just that he is rusty, that the muscles quite aren't there, you know, atrophy perhaps maybe is uh, to blame, and so just the hands aren't snapping the bat through the zone. But, yeah, everything is lagging behind, and he looks really sensitive about pitches inside or covering the inside corner to where any thing on the outer half of the plate he's off balance on and just trying to foul it off I, I don't think there's anything there I think it's helpful to have him as a body like as we mentioned to maybe put Madrigal in the DH spot and have an extra body for uh outfield uh, or uh infield late game emergency should the bench get compromised but I think that's really all he can offer right now because yeah the bat it was worth trying him out when he had a bunch of righties uh against the lefty that could provide enough offense around him but when you have righties, um, you know, a righty starter and righty relievers, and you really need uh, better swings to just have a quantity of them to overcome the lack of quality in the lineup against uh, right-handed pitchers, that I don't think the White Sox can afford to start them anymore. Yeah, I think it's got to be Adam Engel in left field and Nomar Mazzara back in right field for Game Three, almost regardless of starter. Again. If Aloy Jimenez cannot play in the field and he did grab a bat uh, in the postgame comments, Rick Renteria said that it would have been James McCann. If Jose Abreu would have came through, James McCann was next to hit after Abreu and not Jimenez, which I, I find kind of interesting um, because Jimenez did have a bat. We saw that on the television broadcast. It looked like that he was about to come in. But one pitch inning performance really surprised me. And that was Zach Collins coming in to hit for Lurie Garcia. What did you think about the call by Rick Renteria to have Zach Collins pinch hit? I think he liked the idea of what Collins could provide, but just it wasn't grounded in proof that it would work. (laughs) 
Like, you know, I, I like the idea of a lefty against Bassett. I like the idea of a power bat as the tying run, uh, you know, as somebody who can uh, be a threat. Um, and, yeah, so I get that. I, I get the, you know, I think if we're playing, say, like, if, if we're uh, simming out of the park baseball or something like that, and <laughs> Collins was just a set of skills, um, you know, a, a set of ratings, uh, you know, 45 hit tool, 65 power, uh, 60 strike zone. And just, you, you put that in and you didn't have to pay any attention to the lack of at bats that he's had all season and the, uh, just the lack of, of, uh, ability to hit major league pitching that he'd shown in very sporadic playing time up until this point. Uh, that's, I think when it would have worked, but having seen him go one for 16 during the regular season and not really having seen him like, you know, match major league velocity and swing through a lot of pitches, it just didn't seem like it was going to work. And, and, you know, we talked about it before, uh, the postseason when it, when it came to like Renteria having maybe a few too many options with a 28 man roster, just guys who weren't there, um, all of a sudden being trusted in situations that they weren't even one of the best players for, like we talked about with Carlos Shadon coming in with the bases loaded, just like Carlos Shadon has never been in that situation. It's kind of like Zach Collins is kind of like the equivalent of that. It's just somebody who's not qualified for the role they're going to be in with a lot of rust, uh, being thrust into a very important situation just based on the skills he has. And it would have been awesome if it materialized. And I guess I could have understood if Collins came through, like why it worked, but it just seemed like there was just too much going against it to really think it was a good idea. Yeah. I just, I don't want to use this as the platform to say that this is, this experiment needs to be done. But I mean, right now, Zach Collins has a 40 grade bat. I'm with you. The velocity is a problem for Zach Collins. He has a tough time catching up to it. So if you got a pitcher on the mound, who's going to pump 94 plus miles per hour up in the zone, He's just going to have a tough time at this moment making contact. Renteria said that he was hoping that Collins could run into one. And, you know, I get it. You're down five runs. Might as well give the the kid a shot. He's a left-handed power bat. Maybe it will work, um, but it didn't come to fruition. And, again, you had the opportunity to take the lead uh, in the ninth inning. So it's one of those decisions that, you, we may have just not thought about it at all. Be like, whatever, they're down by five. I guess give him in a bat, Jim. In the end, that may have cost the White Sox the game, possibly. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the chance, uh, and first of all, I think I said tying run. I was conflating the three-run homer situations between the, the eighth and se- uh, seventh. Yeah, the Collins uh, three-run homer would have made it a 5-3 game if he you know, ran into one like you and Ricky said. Right. Uh, yeah, I think just you know when it comes to pinch hitting and you know maybe Eloy Jimenez comes up instead because you know otherwise the, and that's the other thing too is, Jimenez is, you know, theoretically available, but if he was being pulled back for James McCann, you know, maybe he's not there yet. Right. And he just, in Renteria, likes floating him as a threat, but just doesn't feel like he's, you know, got the, the legs underneath him to actually hit with power. Mm-hmm. No, at the I plate. mean. And he doesn't have the legs underneath him to run it out. And so maybe that's why Collins came in, because it's not going to be James McCann against a righty. And, and so what are you left with then? Like Yolmer Sanchez, maybe, you know, not, yeah, I guess that's, a better possibility in terms of major league hitting. But if you're looking for the, the one quick strike, that's not your guy either. So I, I think in all cases, especially since, you know, Jimenez was pulled back and maybe he's not the option that Renteria is touting him as just maybe he's more of a, uh, a decoy. 
um, that's the case where, yeah, just maybe that's, um, there, there were no other power bat options or, or big impact options against a righty like Bassett where it's a bit more defensible and, or maybe if Collins didn't hit the guy who would have hit in his place, wasn't going to be much of a threat either. A hat tip to Jimmy Cordero, who pitched really mm-hmm. well out of the bullpen. Two and two-third innings after Keuchel only allowed one hit and one walk and striking out two. Dylan Cease pitched a scoreless inning on 14 pitches, Jim. And Cody Hoyer made quick work as well. He only threw eight pitches, and Rick Renteria has already said that Hoyer is available for tomorrow. So good job by the White Sox relievers to come in and uh, really shut down Oakland's lineup. Oakland only did their damage against Dallas Keuchel. So again, to come full circle, if Magical makes that play in the first inning, if Keuchel doesn't give up the two home runs, maybe we're talking about a White Sox winner. And the fact that the White Sox made Liam Hendricks throw 49 pitches today, uh, I I am really interested to see on how Bob Melvin is going to manage this game tomorrow. Because I know Hendricks is a weapon. And he said, and after the game, Melvin said right away that you bet that Hendricks is available tomorrow, but that's got to be a, a risky situation. And I can't imagine that Hendricks is going to be 100%. Yeah. I don't get that at all. Like a, uh, it, it seemed like a little bit of almost panic managing to have Hendricks come in the eighth. And that's one thing I think that's really changed about postseason baseball over the last couple of years. I think ever since maybe, the Zach Britton, Buck Showalter episode where the Orioles mm. never called on Zach Britton to come in. And so he never pitched in a wild card game. Uh, and the Orioles end up losing without their best reliever ever being on the mound. Uh, it seems like managers have been a lot more gung ho about using their best reliever no matter what. And I think that can, you know, I, I think their hearts in the right place, but I think it also leads to situations where all of a sudden, if things don't go well, you have Hendricks facing 10 batters and, and Jake Diekman only getting warm after eight batters. <laughs> like that's, and that's a situation Hendricks has never performed in. And it wasn't like he was trying to hold a one run lead as a five run lead. Like that's a case where, like we've seen with Alex Colome, uh, with Rick Renteria, where he goes to like, he, you know, when Aaron Bummer got hurt and he had to use lesser relievers in the eighth, you know, sometimes those relievers will only be good for two outs. And so Colome had to come in and get an extra out in the eighth and then, you know, start the ninth anew. And, you know, that's, I think, something closers are accustomed to, and it, it fits within the normal realm of closer activity. But I think when, you know, Bassett, you know, starting the eighth, not a bad idea, gives him a hit, first sign of trouble, pull him, that's traditional. But then to go to Hendricks, it, it just, I think, says, you know, and this is may, maybe getting a little bit metaphysical here, but it just, I think it sends wrong signals to where it's like, huh, this is unusual. Maybe something unusual will happen, you know, just as a fan watching the game. And sure enough, it was a very unusual last two innings, and you know Hendricks maybe doesn't get out of it if he walks. Uh, you know, if, if Mazzara gets that walk rather than gets the uh, pitch off the plate called against him, and so for Melvin to kind of double down it and say that Hendricks is available uh, tomorrow, I I welcome that, but I, I just that that strikes me as more of the same panic managing because even that's like even Hendricks. Uh, not being available after a heavy workload, that's something that's also normal for bullpen. Sometimes a closer is available and somebody else has to be used, but to keep going against 
calls when you have a cushion just because you're afraid of not having that guy in the mound should things go wrong. Yeah, that fear-based managing, I think, is kind of a wrong way to go. And it's a thin line. But as we're seeing, like, you know, we get a lot of uh, reflexive Rick Renteria insults in our mm-hmm. timelines and our mentions. But no manager right now is really covering himself in glory. And that's, I think, because it's hard and because uh, uh, just... I, I think, you know, especially for a guy like Renteria, who doesn't have postseason success uh, of any kind, he doesn't have postseason failures either. He just, this is his first. And Melvin's had a rough go of it. Rocco Baldelli's had a rough go of it. Like, it's been tough for these guys. And I think, uh, you know, it's, even when they think they're making the right decision, it, it can be the wrong one if it's maybe too aggressively correct. You know, it doesn't fit within the flow of the game or something. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It doesn't make me sound like a, a kook or making something up or being all intangible <laughs> about it. But, yeah, it's that's a case where just like if they brought in anybody else, maybe not Joaquin Soria, but anybody else, it would just been like, great. You know, it, it's setup, typical setup work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to go against their second and third best relievers in order to get a couple of runs. That's normal. That's not bad managing. That's traditional bullpen roles. And to leave Hendricks just hanging, hanging out there uh, – twisting in the wind and and needing uh, some help from the umpire to get out of it. Just that struck me as uh, negligent. Well, how will these managers get ready for game three? And what's the way to go for Rick Renteria for the all hands on deck approach for the Chicago White Sox? Bob Melvin, while speaking to Oakland reporters has said that his starter is to be announced. And so is the White Sox starter. So Jim, who should start for the White Sox in game three in a winner-take-all? I think I'm okay with Dunning getting a start, but only for, say, you know, two innings one time through. I think he's shown that, you know, early on in starts, even when he's not feeling, he's still got enough life on his fastball, still got enough sink, and the slider's good enough to where, like, he doesn't allow real hard contact. Sometimes that shows up later, but I think you can get one time through, and if you really don't want to throw your bullpen off and ask too much of everybody, because I think when you have a bullpen game and you're asking guys to go two innings when they normally go one, and I, I think the more, you know, sometimes the more pitchers you use, the greater chance that one guy doesn't have it that day. Uh, it makes it harder to switch out when things aren't going well. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing Dunning get the start, but only for, say, two innings, one time through. If there's a cushion, maybe let him go further because uh, he has shown the ability to work deeper into starts. Um, you know, not completely abandon ship if uh, things are going well, but have somebody at the ready, have a plan for the third inning onward, and I, I think that's fine. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Dane Dunny will get the ball tomorrow for the White Sox. I just quickly wrote it down as far as on my notepad. I've got Dunning two to three innings. I got Foster for an inning or two. Then I would go to Crochet. Then I would go to Hoyer. And then, depending on where you are in the lineup, either have Bummer or Marshall take on the seventh and eighth inning, and then Colome in the ninth, and hope that you have the lead for Colome to come in in the ninth inning to close it up. That's kind of how I have it drawn up on paper here, on the way that the White Sox can do it. So again, Dunning, Foster, Crochet, Hoyer, Bummer, or Marshall to take on the 7th and 8th, and then Colome. I think depending on how the lineup stacks up, if, if say, if Dunning gets the start and they, and Bob Melvin tries a similar tactic that he used against Giolito, you know, crowding the top of the lineup with lefties, I wouldn't mind, you know, Dunning going one time through and then Crochet coming in to face those lefties if they're all bunched yeah. up at the top, and then having him go two innings. And then, you know, perhaps if... 
you know, he goes two innings on 20 pitches, maybe a third. But I also think the White Sox have enough depth to where if they don't feel like uh, really putting him in unprecedented territory in a, an elimination game in his very first weeks in the major leagues after having no other pro ball experiences, maybe asking a little bit too much from a guy at that stage in his career. I would understand that too. And if they go to Hoyer and uh, Foster and, you know, the, the Bummer, Marshall, et cetera, I think that's fine too. But I think, you know, depending on where they leave it and how Oakland bunches up their hitters, whether they go, uh, I think it probably for a, for a game like this makes sense to go right, left, right, left as much as you can in the lineup just to guard yourself against any kind of uh, advantageous run of hitters for a, a manager to switch to. Like if, if they pack three lefties in the first four spots against Dunning, then, you know, that makes easier work, work for crochet theoretically, you know, and say the fourth inning or whatever. So I think that's going to be, if I'm Renteria designing up a lineup card, I think I go, you know, military style, right, left, right, left as um, much as possible, just because I think it's going to be mix and match for a lot of it. Three batter minimum on the side. Yeah, that's a good point. Looking as far as at the the game one lineup for the Oakland Athletics, and Dunning does struggle a little bit to command his pitches against left-handed hitters. That's where it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think both teams ideally want to have the quick starts. Like, as we have seen so far in games one and two, Oakland had the commanding lead, at, you know, by the fourth inning. And the White Sox had a comfortable lead as well uh, halfway through in the game. I think that's where you want to try to make this a five inning game. And it's going to be really up to the offenses on who can jump out right away. As far as whoever starts in game three and get some offense going. And I, I think for the white Sox, hopefully they are able to do that. Will would you advise Renteria to make any lineup changes going into game three? Well, you know, I wrote about it before game two, just talking about Eloy Jimenez and thinking about just the possibilities, permutations uh, you can use, whether Jimenez is, you know, 80%, 90%, 100%, can play the outfield, can only DH, can pinch hit at best. And, you know, basically I think Mazzara has shown enough the last week and even in these two at-bats he had that he's probably the third best outfield play behind Luis Robert and Adam Engel. So assuming Jimenez can't be out there, I think you put Mazzara out there. And then when it comes to DH, depending on the handedness and such, like I don't hate the idea of Madrigal being the DH. Just <laughs> I, Like I don't like Encarnacion out there. I don't like if Jimenez can't play, he can't play. Like if he can't run the bases uh, or, or potentially makes it worse trying to run the bases. Right. Uh, yeah, you just can't do that. So as unusual as it may seem, you know, Sanchez might be the best bet of the remaining players from both sides. If it is lefty, you know, I don't mind having James McCann out there either as a DH and seeing if he can get back out there. You know, if they start Sean Manaya, but if it's Mike Fires, I don't know if McCann's going to be much of a threat to where maybe Sanchez is the better play, you know, having a left-handed bat there. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not opposed to Renteria getting weird for this and having Sanchez start at second magical DHing and then having McCann there as a bench bat uh, from the right side, having Jimenez as a bench bat and see how it goes. But I think the one difference I would make is like with, with magical, I still like the idea of having him batting first or second, just to not have him have to get through whoever's in the DH spot and who's ever the bad platoon option in the outfield in order to hope that he comes to the plate again. That's my, really my one reservation about having magical in the ninth spot. I think it makes sense as a guy who can turn the lineup over, but in these late game situations, when it's close and a must win game, it's, it feels like five batters when there are only two batters between him and uh, Madrigal getting a chance to affect the game. 
Yeah, my adjustment for the lineup is that Renteria needs to close the gap between Anderson and Abreu. I don't think there should be two batters between the two. So I think I would move Abreu up to third. I think I would go Anderson, Grandal, and Abreu. Like that gap needs to be shortened because if I just like the idea that if Anderson does get a base hit, that Abreu could work with an out or no outs if Grandal gets on base as well. You may run into the situation because Tim Anderson now gets three hits every game, it seems like. Uh, He's got back-to-back three-hit games to start his playoff career. Awesome start for Tim Anderson. It's just that I, I, again, I would like Abreu to have a little bit more leeway to work with. If If Anderson's on base, to work with zero or one out rather than one or two outs. Because Mikata, he did draw the walk and he did have the lawn fly ball, but it does appear that he is struggling with velocity still. And again, we know why he's having a tough time recovering from COVID-19. I just don't like that two batter gap right now between Anderson and Abreu. So I would shrink that. I would have Grandal bat second and I would have Abreu bat third. And if you want Mikata to be the cleanup hitter, sure. You can have Mikata be the cleanup hitter. Kind of go back to what you were saying, righty, lefty, righty, lefty. Especially if you don't know who's going to start that game until like two hours before first pitch. If it's going to be Mike Fires or it's going to be Sean Manaya. I really hope it's Sean Manaya. That would make things a lot easier for the White Sox. Uh, I, I'm assuming it's going to be Mike Fires for the yeah. Athletics. Yeah, I'm, I'm counting on that too. And But then again, Melvin let his closer face 10 batters. So right. Quite I, sure. Like, I'm not sure what's exactly getting in his head right now, but he's made some curious pitching decisions and, I mean, that's plaguing a lot of baseball right now. There are you know, a lot of managers under the gun and such. So it's funny. Like I was reading the comments on the athletic article about the t- game one and just like Baldelli doesn't have what it takes to manage in the postseason. Just anytime you lose a game, you don't have what it takes. Yep. And uh, let's talk about that real quick as we wrap up as far as this version of the postgame show. Again, scores around Major League Baseball. The Minnesota Twins are out. They get swept by the Houston Astros. So hat tip to you, Jim. You get that prediction correct, and I get that one wrong as the Houston Astros move on. The Minnesota Twins only scored one run in both games. I'm sorry. I, I get that you got Twins fans angry about Rocco Bedelli's pitching decisions, but let's face it. If your offense is only going to score one run, I mean, this isn't hockey. Uh, Even in hockey today, you don't win one to nothing games. Uh, You're just not going to win baseball games, especially the postseason scoring one run. So the Minnesota's offense lets down uh, the team again, and the Minnesota Twins have lost 18 straight postseason games. The Atlanta Braves win it in the 13th inning, one to nothing. The game that just seemed like it never wanted to end as Freddie Freeman had the walk-off single, <laughs> one to nothing. The game that maybe turned to Reddit to find a working White Sox stream <laughs> so I could actually watch the game. <laughs> Excellent. And the Miami Marlins, the fish, explode for five innings against the, I'm sorry, the five-run inning against the Chicago Cubs to win that game 5-1 to one and win game one. It's a painful win, though, for Miami. Starling Marte first reported that he broke his hand, but now it seems like it's been a dislocated pinkies. He got hit in the hand. His status for the rest of the series 
uh, is unknown. And the Milwaukee Brewers got some really bad news. Devin Williams, their outstanding reliever and my pick for National League Reliever of the Year, uh, is now not available for the first series. He's hopeful that if the Brewers can upset the Dodgers, he could be available in the division series. Uh, But the Milwaukee Brewers, before they even play a game, lose one of their weapons out of the bullpen and Devin Williams, who has been spectacular for the Milwaukee Brewers. So that's the other news items around the Major League Baseball postseason. And we'll have the Sox Machine postseason pregame show tomorrow. Right now, the game is scheduled for 2.10 p.m. Central Time. So the pregame show will start again at 1.30 p.m. Central Time. However... If the Yankees win today and other things happen as far as tonight and they decide to flex that game later in the day, follow us on Twitter at Sox Machine. You can also follow me on Twitter at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Just in case if Major League Baseball decides to flex that game later in the night, if they do, we will adapt and uh, change as far as our show times to match up as far as the first pitch. But right now, as you are listening to this, the first pitch is scheduled for 2.10 p.m. Central Time for Game 3, the winner take all, and we'll have the Sox Machine post-game pregame show start at 1.30. Uh, one again, note, uh, one quick note, though, is James Fegan said that uh, in reply to Penals, he said that there are three games that are listed that could be flexed, and the White Sox-A's game is not one of them. Is not one of them? Yes, Okay, so he no said that before what. the game or as the game was getting started. So it's not clear you know, if, if things change. But given that if it's not flexed, I imagine that it won't be. So. Okay, all right. So, plan on for two ten p.m. Central Time. Plan on for another afternoon tilt. And uh, again, there's a lot riding. It's the season for both the Chicago White Sox and the Oakland Athletics. I am sure it will be a very exciting game three, one that I hope that the Chicago White Sox win, obviously. But that will do it for this show of the postgame show for the Sox Machine podcast. You can help support us at patreon.com slash Sox Machine. You can also get some Sox Machine swag from our store where we do have the coffee mugs uh, that are limited quantity. Uh, We have the Sox Machine shirts as well that you can purchase for $25 and include shipping. I sent more shirts out today this morning. So thank you guys for purchasing some. And alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. That will do it for this edition of the Sox Machine Post Game Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you tomorrow to preview Game 3 of the American League Wildcard Series. Leslie D. won free groceries and shop, play, win Monopoly at Safeway. Don't miss your chance with only three weeks left to play. Satisfy your thirst with Coca-Cola, bubbly or sparkling ice. Take a snack break with Sargento cheese or Ritz and serve up fun with Pop-Tarts. Increase your chances to win. Shop these bonus ticket items specially tagged in store. Download the Shop, Play, Win app to play today. No purchase necessary. See rules at www.shopplaywin.com. Hasbro is not a sponsor of this promotion. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.